Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at PaxSci.org. I welcome you to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Every Friday, we get together and try to put into an hour some idea of what happened this week and why, what it means. And uh, I couldn't do that alone. I gather some of my favorite journalists, including Publicola's co-founder and publisher, Erica C. Barnett. Hi. Hey, Bill. Welcome back. Seattle Times Investigations Editor. Hi, Jonathan Martin. Hey, Bill. Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter, Alex Halverson. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me, Bill. And you can see all these folks and me because we do stream the show live on YouTube and Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio there. And let's get right to the news of the week. This week, Amazon's CEO told employees it is past time to come back to the office. If you don't, quote, it's probably not going to work out for you at Amazon. The company had told employees in February they had to be in the office at least three days a week. Tens of thousands of workers protested. Some have refused. This week's CEO Andy Jassy said one of the company's principles is have backbone, disagree, and commit. Well, he said, quote, it's past the time to disagree and commit. Alex, you uh, have said that Amazon workers don't really believe the company on this, that, that working in the office is better. Yeah, and I'm going to be a little pedantic, sorry, but it was last week um, Last Jassy made the comments in an okay. internal fireside chat. But yeah. Oh, it's come to light. Yes. Go on. Uh, for months, you know, ever since the announcement, um, a lot of employees, they have this internal Slack channel. It's remote advocacy uh, work. And they've been asking, okay, well, we're a tech company. We do everything by data. Where's the data that says we should be coming in? And the company's kind of hemmed and hommed at that. Um, and then over the last few weeks, a lot of the bosses were like, well, you know what? We don't have the data. This is a judgment call. And AWS, the cloud division. Um, boss said during an internal meeting, hey, we don't have the data to back this up, but it's just what we're going to do. And then Jassy said the same thing. And um, what made it a little bit more incendiary is, I think, that disagree and commit comment. Um, disagree and commits this leadership principle at Amazon that if you're an Amazon veteran and a lot of people at Amazon take very seriously, it's this everybody gets their voice, you know, um, on a project to make sure that, you know, you're looking at it from all angles and then you pick a way to do it and then you chug along and you keep doing it. Um, so there's some people saying, well, this is sort of a weaponization of that phrase, and these are things we take really seriously. And again, we're asking for the data behind this decision, and Amazon's like, well, we just don't have it, so you're, we're going to do it. Is there data? Is there such a thing as data? Is there Does research point any one direction on this? I can't find it. I mean, there's like little studies here and there that'll be like, oh, productive, you know, uh, remote work is good for productivity. Oh, actually, it's not too bad. Um, some companies will point at, hey, you know, last year was a really rough year. We need to get back in the office. Um, I think because so many companies had a rough year last year, it's more market conditions. Um, but, you know, they, they can always point at the scoreboard of revenue each quarter. Yeah, it feels like so much of this is just vibes. Um, it, you yes. know, it, it it feels to certain CEOs like, you know, who, particularly a CEO who wants to control and be able to sort of oversee workers in this very, you know, uh, in Because they want to make money? Well, but I, I mean, like Alex said, I mean, I don't know that there's, there's money, um, you know, data associated, but I also don't think that there's conclusive data about productivity, about creativity. I don't really know how you dataize that. Um, you know, or quantify it. I think different people work in different ways. And this insistence that everybody works best, you know, hanging out over the water cooler is contradicted by the experience during the pandemic, particularly of women and of racial minorities who, you know, in many cases worked more effectively, were able to balance their time better and didn't face the same kind of in-person discrimination and, you know, being ignored that, um, you know, that they faced going into the office. And so I think uh, Jassy and other CEOs are really ignoring these very real concerns and very real points that, you know, some of their workers made during the pandemic and are continuing to make. It, it Going to Alex's question about the um, research, it does seem like it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure kind of thing. If you want to find research that says that um, hybrid or work from home is more efficient, you can find it. If you want to find that, you know, in-office is more efficient, you can find that too. So I think the question for employers is sort of, is the juice worth the squeeze here? What are you really trying to accomplish by having your folks come back in? 
you know, uh, I work in a newsroom where there's a lot of creative collaboration and we see the value of having people meet in person and having that sort of that spark that happens between creative people. Where's your data? Yes. <laughs> well, the other thing that's interesting about this is that, um, you know, the N- uh, NLRB has said that there is um, uh, if you're in a unionized workplace, then you generally are going to have to bargain this um, because it's a change in material work condition. And, you know, that that leaves a player with another question is, do you want to pay to have your folks come back? You want to have to talking get about concession. The, are you to, talking about change in work condition from the there was a global pandemic yes. and there was lockdowns and people worked for, but now you have to bargain the return to the way things were before? Correct. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know our, our newsroom just settled a contract and we had that come up. Um, so uh, anyway, that's interesting. It's an interesting element for um, organizations that are do have unions and maybe might be an incentive for non-unionized workplaces that really don't want to go back to, um, to uh, um, unionize so one one piece I read about this likened it to the the era when everything was going to open office. The idea that everybody was going to be collaborative and work better in an open office than they would, you know, in individual little cubicles or offices. And I think that the results were really mixed. Um, I mean, as someone who works from home and has for a long time, and you know, really enjoyed having a space that I could go into when I had an office. Um, I find open office setups really distracting and really hard to work in. And people are always interrupting you when you're like in the creative flow. And so I think there is a way to make those, you know, those collaborative meetings happen in that in-person, you know, back and forth happen, you know, without necessarily forcing everybody to sit in the office the rest of the time. And boy, I've been to a lot of editorial meetings uh, in my day uh, before working uh, for myself. And I would say, you know, 80% of it was a waste of time and 20% was great. <laughs> wow. you know, a lot of these t- tech companies are doing that. They've spent the pandemic, you know, whether it was building new offices that facilitate more collaborative and creative space. Amazon, uh, you know, did it so in some of their offices that they've already established. They've reworked some of the configurations to facilitate, again, that creative and collaborative space. Um, but some of the employees are saying like, well, at the end of the day, I need to like go in and just do work and it's just not conducive. Um, there is a slight financial, you know, element to this. Um, the return to office is a big existential question for commercial real estate in cities, and uh, Amazon does have a vested interest in that. Not only they're a tech company, but they're a real estate company. They have three of the biggest twenty towers in Seattle, um, so it is, you know, a benefit for them if commercial real estate value stays up. They don't want rents to plummet. They don't want office space value to plummet. Um, but again, I think the employees would say, well, then. Show us that's why you want us in. Don't just say this is a judgment call you want us in. Again, they're just begging for that data. And Jassy's comments prove they're not giving that data. Okay. Well, we'll um, we'll see. I guess I, I don't, I don't want to just ask for predictions based on nothing, but I'm just really <laughs> curious what happens when you say the time has come. You know, the company is saying, uh, come in. We told you to come in. We're not playing. And well, they're saying they're enforcing it. You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a bunch of Amazon employees got this email. You haven't been coming in enough. Yeah. Um, the problem was what it was sounded a little botched. I had employees reach out to me and said, I've been going in every day and I got this email. But that's um, not enforcement. That's just once again saying we really want you to come in. You haven't And been. again, I think that's kind of frustrating on the employees because they got this, you know, oogie boogie email. And then it <laughs> later turned out in the press, oh, we've been tracking it by badge in. So employees are going, well, you're tracking us. You're telling us why you're coming in. Well, what are the repercussions? And they can't even get that answered anyway because, you know, they'll ask and they'll say, oh, we'll ask your manager. And then the managers don't know anything because this is, you know, very top down decision. So they're still not really enforcing it yet. They're still asking. Okay, we'll see. I want to, since we're talking about uh, um, companies and Amazon, by the way, which has changed the way, changed the world, I want to talk about the last 24-hour pharmacy in Seattle going away. The Bartell Drugs on uh, Lower Queen Anne slash Uptown is, uh, is about to close, we found out this week. And I bring it up because it's not just about one store. It's, a, it's about a formerly local 100-something-year-old chain withering. It's about technology, Amazon, and other you know people going online that makes life easier for some of us, harder for some of us. So first, Alex, why? Why do these all these Bartell stores keep closing? And is this Queen Anne one different? I don't think it is. Uh, the Queen Anne one closed in the same week. Rite Aid announced it was closing a store in Pennsylvania, rural Idaho, um, suburban Connecticut, and I'm sure other stores are going to close too. And they've been closing all year. 
Um, I think Jonathan put this in the notes. Blaming crime is, is an easy thing and people will do it. But it's Meaning just, some people think even because the company didn't mention shoplifting in its no. list. Of and they reasons, have before. And so, they have before. You know, you can take that. But this is just too obvious a pattern. And it it's not that complicated. I mean, Rite Aid was a struggling business in a struggling industry, which is drugstores, that bought a struggling business, Bartel Drugs. They're facing massive debt. They're facing bankruptcy also due to litigation. And they need to right-size their operating income. An easy way to do that is just immediately cut payroll expenses, um, you know, get that lease off your books as quick as you can. And that's what these closures are doing. But I, I have to ask of the business reporter this. I don't understand. <laughs> I know short term it's saving money to close stores. But theoretically, if the stores are profitable, which is why you have stores if you're a company, eventually you want that store to b- keep making a profit for you. So I don't understand the. you wouldn't close a profitable or going to be profitable store, would you? What am I missing? Well, these probably aren't profitable. Okay. Um, that's, so- that's why Bartel is facing trouble. And also, this isn't really an industry that is showing a lot of growth. Um, Drugstores, you know, we like them. Obviously, people like Bartel, but they're just not really necessary anymore, aside from the pharmacy, right? There's too many rivals on that market. You know, you have um, supermarkets that sell all the things you can get at a drugstore. Mm-hmm. Amazon, Target, Walmart, they're all offering you the same thing that Rite Aid can give you, but they'll deliver it to your house that same day. Um, so aside from the pharmacy, there's, there's just not that immense need for a Rite Aid like there was 20, 30 years ago. There was a huge wave of consolidation in pharmacies in the 2010s. Um, I know like CVS bought Target pharmacies, you know, um, Rite Aid bought Walgreens and did promise to keep the brand name alive. And I tell you, whenever we write about Bartels like doing poorly, it just kind of goes crazy on our website. People Same. really identify with Bartels as a hometown company. Um, but this feels like more at the market forces at work. Like anytime you have consolidation, you're going to have uh, consolidation works by making things more efficient and you have to close stores. And they basically said, we are going to close stores. So I said, it's easy to blame crime. I mean, obviously, you know, retail theft is, you know, it's an issue. I'm not going to minimize like that for a company, but um, this is really the market at work and it's companies doing basically what they said they were going to do when they consolidated. Did Rite Aid say what they were going to do? I thought Rite Aid came out and said, don't worry. All will stay well. <laughs> Nothing they said will they were going to protect the brand. Yeah, protect know? the yeah, brand. Yeah. It wasn't exactly. Which is wild because Rite Aid is such a horrible brand, at least in Seattle. I mean, you go in their stores and it's like, it's, know. you know, it's Soviet Russia. Like there's nothing on the shelves. <laughs> so it's these massive stores, the empty shelves. I mean, I, yeah, it was, it was a, it was bad news from the beginning, I think. Um, I, I want to. Just mentioned, you know, you, you said this is, this is the last 24-hour drugstore in Seattle. And Did I get that wrong? No, no, no. Uh, you, you, I, I'm assuming you got that right. Uh-huh. But, I, but I do think it's interesting that Seattle can't sustain, you know, 24-hour businesses. And I think this is true not just um, for drugstores. It's just kind of across the board. You Food. Know, unless you're a Denny's. Yep. Um, you know, you're not, I mean, the 24-hour, uh, actually a QFC near me that used to be 24 hours, no longer 24 hours, closes at 8, I think. Mm. Um, and I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that, that you mentioned in the show notes, Bill, was this idea of a 15-minute city. I interviewed Mayor Jenny Durkin about that. She was really all about the 15-minute city, Bill, like Paris. Everything's in your neighborhood. You don't have to drive across town. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, The problem is that in Seattle, we have zoning that just flat out does not allow that. Um, it is it is impossible for Seattle to be a 15 minute city right now because most of the city is still I mean, even though we've done like a little bit of an up zone, um, it's you can't have commercial stuff. You can't have, you know, uh, stores, retail, um, restaurants, drugstores, et cetera, um, gas stations, which is probably a good thing, you know, in most of the city. Mm-hmm. So if you're going, you're going in your car. If you live in a single family neighborhood, you're getting in your car and you're driving to that one little tiny strip where all the stuff is. And unless you live right next to that one little tiny strip or on it in an apartment, it's 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 driving. And so I, I love the idea of a 15-minute city. I really love the idea of there being 24-hour stores because I keep weird hours. But it's just not going to happen in Seattle until we massively, you know, revamp our the way that we actually build the city. What about gov- a government-provided 24-hour whatever it is, pharmacy? Because – to get it, you know, you said that Amazon delivers same day, but if you want something that moment, you know, you need – it's a medical uh, sort of emergency. I know there's ERs, but there's some reasons why people use pharmacies at night. So uh, – and and so if the market will no longer – it's 2023 – 
and people say, oh, my God, we need and some of us don't you know, you don't have uh, a credit card to buy it online or you, you're not online or whatever. Right. You don't. It's uh, there's re- there. There are some barriers. So could the government China style just provide <laughs> a Bartel? That's some Space Needle thinking. I mean, wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it'd um, be great, but would it happen? Maybe we need it. But I, I don't see it happening. Okay. All right. Okay, um, and let's before we take a break, since we're you're, we're really leaning on you here, Alex Halverson, hey, Puget Sound Business Journal. T-Mobile is laying off five thousand of its seventy-one thousand employees, four hundred layoffs in Bellevue. Is this just about T-Mobile, or is this a bigger deal? You know, maybe it's a bigger deal. Expedia had some more layoffs. They just announced yesterday there were a couple of software companies um, around like Kirkland and Bellevue that shut down and laid off a few employees. Um, but I, I think the big wave, you know, at the beginning of the year, the Amazon, the Microsoft, the Meta, um, I think that might be over and this might just be more T-Mobile. You know, T-Mobile is kind of weird because it's, it's a tech company, but it's also not a traditional tech company. They're a cell phone carrier, right? Mm-hmm. So they've got a lot of outdated technology. And that's what they kind of blame this on was, you know, we've got a lot of teams working on older technology as we, you know, after we bought Sprint and as we go into the 5G era and whatever comes after that, um, we're going to be getting rid of some teams. And maybe some of those teams are redundant. So that's what they blamed it on. Um, I, I think a little bit also is the Sprint merger. Um, they haven't said how many they've laid off, you know, in Kansas City, but we have a Kansas City reporter and they had a story in April that was really interesting. You know, T-Mobile promised that the Sprint merger was going to create jobs. Um, and in fact, it's just trend in the exact opposite direction. Um, and T-Mobile as a whole has reduced its headcount since the merger. Um, I guess the question for you, Alex, is, is there a consequence? Like John McGuire said pretty clearly, like it was not a it was like this is going to create good, high-paying jobs. And um, what if a CEO like that just basically backslides on what is a pretty clear pledge? What's the consequence for him? I mean, maybe lucky for T-Mobile, uh, John left pretty soon after that. <laughs> no. So it's Mike Sievert's problem now. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. Again, you know, they're creating jobs in Bellevue. I'm sure, so they can lean on that. But uh, eh, search me. I don't. I don't see it happening. I have a question before we take a break. Except my. Uh, I want to ask you all about because when when we talk, we we briefly said that it's too easy to, Jonathan. I think you said too too easy to blame the Bartel closure on crime, and and you too, Alex said that you know they they have they have flagged crime in other stores, and they didn't mm-hmm. with this one. Whenever we talk about crime, and on this show we say ah you can't blame that on crime. I hear from listeners who just think you all are so woke, <laughs> so liberal. So you know how, how lefty the Puget Sound Business Journal and Seattle Times are. Are you just being uh, woke lefties when you, when, you, uh, when you pretend, you close your eyes, you put your head in the sand or pretend there's no crime? I want you to justify it a little more so that I can uh, say to these listeners, well, they didn't just say crime doesn't exist. Well, I wasn't saying that retail theft is not an issue. I'm saying in this case, in the Bartels in Lower Queen Anne, the 24-hour pharmacy, it wasn't, it's not, it's not okay. fair to blame that. But um, of, of course, you know, you go, um, I don't know if you've been to um, the Target downtown where um, there's, uh, there was a, a prosecution a while ago where some people had basically walked in and stolen liquor for like every day for like two weeks straight. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you you see these stores that have basically everything behind plexiglass now. Um, and then it's frustrating because there's nobody in Target to come and get your stuff. Um, so, I mean, obviously stores are doing things to address what they think is a problem. Um, but uh, I just was saying in the case of that Bartels, I think it's not the case. I think shoplifting um, and the increase in shoplifting in some areas is uh, – I think the, the thing that gets discounted in stories about it is that it is largely a labor issue. Um, as, as Jonathan, as you said, I mean, there's nobody working there anymore. When you have stores that are you know, well supplied with labor, and I'm not talking about cops and I'm not talking about a security guard at the front – um, when you have people like actually working in the store who like know the merchandise and can help you, um, shoplifting goes down. And there's all this plexiglass and all this kind of, you know, response to shoplifting that's happening like down at the Target downtown, which has a ton of shoplifting. Um, is I think So you're saying shoplifting does exist. Of course shoplifting exists. <laughs> okay. Just yeah. Noting that. I mean, I think overall, you know, it is it is not up as significantly as um, as some media have portrayed it as. Um, but but of course it exists. But I think the thing that most effectively prevents shoplifting is actually staffing your stores with people. One thing I found one story I found interesting recently was, you know, I, you've heard about these sort of these uh, for flash mob 
uh, retail thefts in San Francisco where people go into like a Nordstrom or a jewelry store and like everybody, like 30 people go in all at once and grab stuff. Yeah. That that was becoming basically an organized crime, um, basically racket. Um, if that's the case, it's like if this is a, you know, a, new, a new racket for organized crime to go in and basically have a very organized uh, effort to uh, to grab as much stuff as possible. That feels like a legitimate law enforcement issue. Like let's <laughs> let's let's do the, the the policing work to address who those people are that are organizing Rico. Uh, yeah, sure. Giuliani. Yeah. Well, the city has an organized retail theft ordinance and, you know, and teams that work on this. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I think the ordinance is often used uh, because of the way it's written. I mean, if you shoplift over a certain amount, you know, in a certain period uh, or at a time, uh, you are considered an organized retail theft operation, even if you are just one person. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of effort that's go- that's gone. I mean, I've written about, you know, individuals who, you know, shoplifted liquor and it was worth over, um, I can't remember the amount, but it's several hundred dollars. And suddenly they're organized <laughs> retail theft operations. So they I- need to if they're going to do that, they need to actually concentrate on the organized part of it and not just the amount. Y'all, I, I have to, we have to take a break because we have so many other things to talk about this week. It's inconvenient that more than one thing happened this week, more than three. So um, uh, I just do I want to note that Seattle also has a law. If we're going to say um, Bartels, we have to also say Targets and Nordstrom's. And Pike's 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 place. So Cap Hill. Yeah, and Caps Hill. Um, all right, we gotta take a break and then it's more week in review, because there's more week to review and we come right back. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at Paxi.org. Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com. This is KUOW's Weekend Review. I'm Bill Radke with Puget Sound Business Journal's Alex Halverson, Seattle Times' Jonathan Martin, Public Cola's Erica Barnett. We discuss uh, some of what happened this week. You can find out a lot more news on our website, our KUOW News Podcast. Just subscribe to that, KUOW News Podcast. We don't have time to go into everything on this show that I learn uh, on that podcast, but some of the things I was interested to learn, I'll just tick some off. Uh, did you know Oregon has a kicker law that if non-corporate income tax revenues exceed projections, they kick the extra money back to taxpayers? And this year, they're kicking back $5.6 billion. That record-shattering kicker is nearly three times higher than the previous largest refund, which came last year. The median taxpayer is expected to receive nearly $1,000 back in the form of a tax credit. Higher income earners will receive far more. Well, they did pay far more because Oregon has a progressive income tax system. By the way, that was OPB reporter Dirk Vanderhart. Washington, of course, has no state income tax, but I don't know. Maybe if they try to change that situation, and they are trying, then a kicker law might make it more palatable to taxpayers. Well, there there is a new capital gains tax, and the yes. and the revenues vastly exceeded the. Uh, estimates. Uh, what do you think the odds are that they would return <laughs> capital gains to uh, the richest one percent of uh, Washington? I don't. Not much. No, Oregon kicks. Washington doesn't kick. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, there's also uh, th- another news item this week. There's been a wave of home robberies in South Seattle neighborhoods, including Rainier Beach, Columbia City, Beacon Hill, at least 14 since June. The mayor says there are probably more people robbed at gunpoint or assaulted. KUOW reporter Gustavo Segrero told us many robberies have happened in the middle of the day, and they t- are targeting Asian Americans. Connie So is the president of the Organization of Chinese Americans of Greater Seattle, a professor at UW and she's also from Beacon Hill, one of the several neighborhoods that have been targeted. She says crimes like these have been happening for a long time now. She says many of the people affected are mostly first-generation immigrants who encounter language barriers and might not have trust in institutions like the local government and police. How many times, I mean, and, you know, police is not really the answer because they're pretty quick, actually. 13 to 15 minutes, they respond, right? But they're only there after the crime is committed. 
That's not the mayor's takeaway, though. Mayor Bruce Harrell says he hopes the Seattle City Council understands the need for more police. It's just unacceptable, and so we will continue to find community-based solutions. I'm recruiting police officers everywhere I go. We want more eyes on the street. Harrell says he's trying to recruit 125 new officers every year to help bring crime down. Another news item, Seattle City Council is going to vote next week on whether to pass a resolution supporting the idea, got that, pass a resolution supporting the idea of covering Interstate 5 with a lid downtown. KUOW's Joshua McNichols told us that would let the city go after federal funding. Fen Huang runs the Foster White Gallery. She meets me at 6th and Spring, right near the freeway. It's an open sore in the midst of the city of Seattle. Having the traffic noise and just the cleaving of our city by the I-5 being the first thing people see when they approach us from the airport, how sad is that? That's not who we are. Well, actually, it is who we are, but maybe it doesn't have to stay that way. Trouble is, the estimated price tag, of course, is in the billions. Well, and, you know, we just spent uh, billions completing the our beautiful waterfront uh, highway design where we added an eight-lane highway to much of the downtown waterfront. So, not, Are we going to put a lid over that? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Or maybe we could invest in tearing it down. <laughs> Final thing before we get back to the show and, and, and our news discussion. I just saw that the Husky, you know, the Huskies and Cougars sports conference, the Pac-12, is disintegrating, right? Well, today we learned Stanford and UC Berkeley are joining a new conference, a different conference, the Atlantic Coast Conference. So two universities on the Pacific Ocean in the Atlantic Coast Conference. Yeah, good luck for like the baseball and volleyball teams going to Boston and Miami, you know, a couple times a week. It's just, this is just Absurdistan for college sports. Absurdistan. Well put. <laughs> the all-coast conference. Right. The storied rivalry. That storied Husky-Boston uh, <laughs> rivalry. This, Yeah, the schools like to say this isn't about the money. It's about the student-athletes <laughs> making Jonathan laugh until he cries. <laughs> it's about the student-athletes, about the storied rivalries, the time-honored traditions the tradition of, uh, of capitalism. Okay, so just a few things I learned. That last one is not yet on the uh, KOW News podcast, but, um, you know, a lot is. I recommend it. So what we're doing uh, with my guests, Alex Halverson, Jonathan Martin, Erica Barnett, is discussing other news this week, including, Erica, lots of people, uh, you know, camping on the street, don't want to go into shelters. They are noisy. They are unsafe sometimes. They are restrictive. Okay, so let's offer them. Hotel rooms with a door that locks. Promising idea. But one King County hotel shelter program collapsed earlier this year. This program was run by the Lived Experience Coalition, people with direct experience being homeless. An independent consultant just produced a draft report. And what did they say caused this homeless shelter program to collapse? Well, it's a very complex report, um, but I'll just say there are a lot of factors. One is handing this much money and responsibility to an organization that is primarily an advocacy group, the Lived Experience Coalition, had never run a program before, full stop, you know, a a shelter program. And this Mm -hmm. was a very large grant. It was a million dollars. There was some financial oversight that didn't happen from the fiscal sponsor, which is a group called Building Changes. Um, and, you know, the report doesn't dwell on this, but I do think that the King County Homelessness Authority has, bears some responsibility because they were putting people into these hotels um, through one of their programs. They put 121 people into uh, into several of the hotels. So we're talking about, you know, maybe 400 people total, not exactly sure the number, but uh, but a lot of them are coming from the Homelessness Authority. And the Homelessness Authority sort of washed its hands of it and said, we didn't have anything to do with this program because they didn't fund it, they didn't oversee it. So there's just, there's a lot of oversight-related blame to go around. And so... What do you think the, I guess, city, county, regional homelessness authority, what what will these leaders take away from the failure and this report on what happened? Well, I think one thing that has already been a takeaway from this and other experiences they've had is that the Lived Experience Coalition, which is one organization, it doesn't represent all homeless and formerly homeless people, um, you know, that they gave 
perhaps a bit too much responsibility to this group, both with this hotel program, but in other areas, the LEC has the authority to appoint uh, people to the implementation board and other boards that oversee like very technical aspects of homelessness funding. Um, and so so they're kind of revisiting, you know, what is our relationship with this group like? You know, did we give I mean, they're written into like the charter of the organization. And I think that was something that Mark Dones, the former CEO, really emphasized as we need to give a lot of power to people with lived experience as personified by this one group. And so I think they're backing away from that already and will continue to do so. What made Mark Dones decide that? I mean, that th- this would this organization who's never, as you said, never has never run anything. I guess Mark Dones is gone, so um, that person's not around to be held accountable. But I'm just curious what the, if anyone's defending this, saying, no, look, this this is why we did this, and this is why it seemed like a good idea. Well, to be clear, the KCRHA had nothing to do with setting up the hotel program. It was like a FEMA-funded program that trickled down through the United Way of King County and all these other groups. But um, but I do think, you know, I, I don't think that there's a clear answer for why Jones gave so much authority to the Lived Experience Coalition, except that, you know, that was the group that they identified as, you know, representing homeless people and formerly homeless people. But mm-hmm. I think that in the early going, I mean, in general— Jones um, had almost total power over a lot of decision making. Um, and I think people really deferred to them um, in, you know, in terms of just how the agency would look. I mean, they wrote the plan for the agency as a consultant for King County and then became the CEO of the agency and then was like, well, this is what the plan for the agency says. So we've got to do everything that I said in my report. So it was kind of a weird, you know, circular uh, logic where um, everything that Dones wrote in their report for the for the King County became what the agency was. So I think that was probably not a great setup <laughs> um, because there wasn't a lot of, you know, there weren't dissenting voices uh, that had a lot of power in, you know, in kind of establishing what this agency would look like. I mean, there is, just to go to your point about why the lived experience, I mean, more broadly, there's historically there's been um, fewer people who actually have lived experience of people who are homeless on on governing boards. And so there's, you know, I think this is an, maybe an overcorrection. I don't know. I mean, I, my, but there's a correction to a past issue with homeless services. Um, you know, the the um, the bigger picture here is the KCRA was set up in order to more have a more consolidated and streamlined and efficient homelessness system. And I think that what we've seen in the first couple of years of this is an organization itself that has a, a lot of administrative problems. Um, you know, that on. Dones on his way out the door um, pointed to a governance problem that the KCRA itself has like three different governing boards overseeing it. And Helen Howell, the new interim CEO, has identified the same thing. Um, but it, the iron, I mean, the, the irony is here is for something that was supposed to be efficient, the KCRA has this history in the brief time it's in existence of like failing to pay providers on time, having just really kind of administrative kind of own goals. So uh, it's uh, it's an unfortunate sort of standing up of of this, um, and apparently the the governance issue that now the two the two leaders of this organization's short time both identified apparently is being looked at. I guess there's a committee to look at how many oh, governing boards oversee it. Um, but I think that you have to have an organization that has if your your goal is to be a smooth and efficient administrative organization, you have to have your own ship in order. Yeah. And I think the governing board issue, I mean, it's they're going to change that probably. And it's not it's it's literally kind of shifting around the deck chairs. I mean, this was this was, you know, there are larger issues with the way this organization is set up that people were identifying long before it became an organization and had all these employees and was doing, you know, administering contracts. I mean, there's only so much you can do when you you are essentially an administrative organization putting money into the system. Like there's sort of a funnel for the existing money from King County, from the city of Seattle. So now you have it all administratively located in one place, but they don't have more money. They don't have control over the suburban areas that have disagreements with the city and the county about how to deal with homelessness that are passing all these laws saying, you know, you can't have any shelters in our city. So but you, as you said, yeah. that was all predictable. So what's the point? I mean, will this organization just go away? It was really hard to find a leader. The leader has been quite faulted. And, and, and so maybe it just doesn't work. I mean, it's possible. I, I, I think anything is possible. I can certainly see it, you know, 
Uh, I wouldn't predict, you know, where, where we're going to be two years from now, but they're doing a search for a permanent leader. Um, Helen Howell has said she's only going to be there temporarily. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, it was really hard to find a leader. They, The first person they appointed uh, or that they picked uh, said she didn't want anything to do with it. And that's, you know, how we ended up with the with the second choice. I, I oversaw the um, Seattle Times Project Homeless team when it, before the KCRA model. And so I heard all of the efforts a- to KCRHA. H-A. Sorry, yeah. too many acronyms. Okay, just because the housing, the H is important <laughs> right. in that acronym for um, listeners. And what I saw at that time was this really sort of fractured model where the city of Seattle would initiate, would go, was a big funder, would go on its own way doing an, uh, an initiative. King County kind of did its own thing as well. There was some kind of collaboration, but it was. Um, there was just it was really kind of felt like there was not an overall plan. And that's what we kept hearing from our readers. Like, what's the big plan? What's the big plan? And, you know, the state sprinkles some money on the top, you know, and then certainly the pandemic, the feds sprinkled a lot more money over the top of the system. But the idea of the KCRHA was to have this consolidation that was missing from the previous model. So I say if you're going to go blow up, blow this up. You might come back to exactly the same complaints that I heard from our readers, that there is no big plan. There's nobody in charge. All we're doing is just shoveling money out the door at a variety well, of Suburban programs. cities get to do what they want. Well, yeah, that's, that is a regional. The problem with KCRHA is it's not regional. It's, it's city. <laughs> that's it's the county, R in the acronym, It's by got the way. like a couple of North King County cities, but it's the whole six South King County hasn't bought into this. Yeah. How you do that... I think you either have a carrot or a stick to do it, but right now they're not really doing much of either. Well, and the city of Seattle very quickly yeah. just um, it also goes its own way. They do, um, you know, encampment sweeps. Those have ramped up very much under the uh, current mayor, and they have the choice of whether to fund more or, you know, as Bruce Harrell has said, and as the Seattle Times editorial board has argued, you know, we need to cut because all of this money that came in during COVID is going away. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so the question is, like, do you actually want to do this because that's going to cost money, or do you want to do what we were doing before, but consolidated in this agency that's just going to kind of funnel through all the same funds and do the same stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, The search for, for now, KCRHA is a thing and they're searching for a new leader. Uh, We're we're going to take a short break. Then we come back with Public Cola's Erica Barnett, Seattle Times' Jonathan Martin, Puget Sound Business Journal' Alex Halverson. We're going to talk about the business of weed and other stuff when we return. We can review on KUOW. I'm Bill Radke. Marijuana has been legal in Washington State for a decade, but the federal government still classifies it as a Schedule One drug. Schedule One, meaning it has no medical purpose, even though Washington State <laughs> licenses medical marijuana. Um, Schedule One drugs also have a high potential for abuse and the potential to create severe psychological and or physical dependence. Schedule One drugs include heroin, LSD, ecstasy, and marijuana. Now, you may wonder, what's less bad than marijuana? What's only a Schedule Two drug? Fentanyl, methamphetamine, oxycodone, and cocaine. Are Schedule II drugs. And yet, as rational as that sounds, the feds are considering changing it. Why does everything have to change? Jonathan, what is happening with this radical idea? Well, we've been here before. There was a rescheduling initiative uh, effort under the Obama administration, which was rejected. There's some thinking that this is a different um, effort because the HHS, the Health and Human Services, has recommended it. Uh, and apparently, um, the DEA very rarely rejects um, petitions that are um, come through HHS. Um, I think what this is this is is really uh, the DEA and the Biden administration catching up with about oh about t- 2010. Um, I think that the majority of Americans now see um, majority of Americans live in states where they can access legal marijuana, and uh, the and the polls overwhelmingly show support for legalization. So um, you know the. The, the concept that the, that's the big picture. There is some um, there is uh, some issues with the legal markets. If this is going to be rescheduled, I don't exactly know how like be, making marijuana be prescribable is going to impact these very large retail um, 
uh, markets in, like I said, more than half the of the states. Washington relies on gets about a billion dollars per biennium um, for marijuana taxes. Um, there's going to be um, there's going to be some fallout here. I don't exactly know how it's going to work, but, but can that's I ask the big you picture. if if the feds officially recognize marijuana as having a medical use, mm-hmm. which is part of the Schedule One issue, does that mean you could only in the states you could only buy marijuana with a prescription? Can the feds do that to the states? I'm guessing no. Well. The the state laws are all uh, under basically a sort of a tolerance um, schedule. Like this, the feds could conceivably crack down on recreational markets. They don't. They have not. They don't. Um, but uh, what it would do is, I think that the scheduling would eliminate basically the medical market and turn this into basically um, sort of mainstreamed um, medical use. So if you need uh, cannabis uh, for to treat. And there's there's a lot of legitimate reasons to use cannabis for things like um, nausea, uh, pain relief, uh, and I presumably this rescheduling would um, would effectively end the need for a medical market that is outside the auspices of the medical system. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, in Washington State, you can buy marijuana from state-approved sellers. You cannot legally grow your own pot for recreational use, and some people want to change that, like the ACLU of Washington's Allison Holcomb. What opponents will argue is that if we allow adults to grow their own cannabis, that the regulated marketplace will crash. People will stop visiting stores and will lose the hundreds of millions of dollars in tax revenue that cannabis is now generating for the state of Washington. We know that this is false. We know it in part because of the 19 states that have legal cannabis regulatory systems and also allow personal cultivation. That hasn't been their experience. But I've been reading about the the marijuana market crashing in in in. California and Oregon. Does that have nothing to do with legal grows? Well, I mean, according, uh, you know, no. I mean, my my impression is that that happened because they over uh, produced in response Mm. to people, you know, demanding a lot more weed during the COVID pandemic when they were at home and then demand not keeping up after people sort of started returning to jobs and life started getting a little bit more back to normal. Okay. Um, I think Allison Holcomb, um, I believe in that same story, um, made a point that people also homebrew beer and, yes, you know, and, like and can make wine at home, whatever, you know, and that has not destroyed the market for alcohol. So I think we have a very clear precedent for people being able to grow pot at home and it not, you know, collapsing a market. So but isn't it a lot easier to grow weed than make beer? Well, there you can have, you can grow weed and you can make beer, but it can be bad beer. <laughs> and it could be pe- people have gotten used to very designer and um, ah. potent um, type strains of marijuana that um, you know, it's they the growers are quite good at what they do. Uh, you know, one I'd go to that the home grow issue I covered the initiative um, I-502 campaign back in 2012. And the reason why uh, Allison, and she would say, I think she probably said that in the clip too, that the reason why it was in there was basically, A, the time it was unproven, you could get voter approval. So you wanted to take, they would decide to take the most sort of, you know, mainstream, cautious approach. And also they didn't want to piss off the federal government. The federal government, yes. And she said that. She told yeah. KOW all of that. And they were, even with the even with this approach where they were have a very regulated market and no home grows and it's, you know, all sort of above board, it still was, there was early days of 502 where it was kind of shaky. Like the, the, the DOJ was giving kind of saber rattling to, I think the time was Gregoire's administration. So um, that's why it was, why it has not come back now. I suspect that there's a pretty good lobby now for the marijuana industry in Olympia. So um, there's going to be kind of a, a headwinds to get that through Olympia. They'd um, like it to stay illegal to grow it yourself? Sh- I mean, sure. It's, so they think it's protect- not that hard to grow good marijuana? <laughs> I mean, they don't want any market competitors, but that's also, I think, just overestimated the consumer. I mean, you grow veggies, but most people buy them at the supermarket. The The beer analogy is perfect. Nobody really brews their beer in big production. And again, on a mass market scale, well, it would still be illegal to grow your own weed and sell it, you know, not in the marketplace. So it, you're just not entering the regulated marketplace in, in a way that I think would make it crash. I mean, okay. I can make soda water at home and I'm sitting here with a <laughs> bottle of LaCroix, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah we could go on People and on. People are lazy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, how true is that? Okay, fair enough. Um, so the situation is there that the, some people want it 
want it to be legal to to grow at home. We don't know whether that's going to... It happens in other states, not in Washington State. So we'll watch that one together. Uh, One more topic before we start to make sure we smile on the way out of this show. Um, We have... um, I want to check in on Sound Transit, Erica. They, they've decided to start running the east side line without waiting to, to connect it to Seattle. There are huge construction delays getting it across Lake Washington. So they'll just run it between Redmond and South, South Bellevue uh, starting in the springtime is, is the plan. Meanwhile, Sound Transit is considering moving around light rail stations in South Lake Union and the International District or Pioneer Square or Soto, what should we know about how Sound Transit is going about our business here? Well, I think um, the main thing to know is that the plan that voters approved is most likely not going to be the plan that ends up getting adopted. Um, Some things that might happen um, are the elimination of a planned station in the Chinatown International District, uh, replacing that with another station near the stadiums in a bunch of land that a developer, Urban Visions, wants to develop, and another second station in Pioneer Square, right near the the existing station in an area that Dal Constantine and Bruce Harrell want to turn into a civic campus, a project that has been proposed many times and has never happened. Um, uh, Further north, there was some uh, debate with Amazon and Vulcan, big landowners up there, about construction impacts to the original plan. Um, And so uh, from the original plan, and so they're talking about moving that station a little bit north. So all of these changes and also eliminating a station um, in Midtown that would have served First Hill Altogether, we're talking about 122 million. I believe the net change is around 40 million, but lots of millions of dollars to um, to totally revamp the plan, reconsider everything, do new studies, delay, delay, delay. They're allowed to do that. There won't be lawsuits over the fact that they changed the plan. There could be lawsuits. I mean, anybody can sue, yeah. um, and often often they do. But uh, but there's uh, you know they're allowed to do this, and they did it with the first light rail plan. They they killed the first hill station, which was promised as part of that plan. So. Right. So all that's going on amid, you know, a time when service delays, as you said, I mean, are just happening every single day. The other day there was um, the Seattle Times covered this 30-minute, you know, service every 30 minutes because of a signal problem that was unanticipated. But it's settled back into, it's now 15 minutes. I take it every day. It happened to me today. Trains come every 15 minutes. It's official. (laughs) I I don't know for how long. I know. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, so they're, they're, they're an agency with a lot of problems right now proposing, you know, long delays. And this East Link line, you know, is kind of, I mean, it's, it's great that it's opening for folks who live on the East side. But it is being kind of branded as a starter line. And the reason for that is because they are having to redo all the work that they already did on the I-90 bridge because of problems with that. So yeah. just a lot of a lot of uh, tumult happening at that agency right now. we got about three minutes. I want to hear from Jonathan and, and Alex if you have anything to say about what's happening at Sound Transit. Well, I, I'm going to put a marker down for a future show that we should talk about this civic campus idea that Dow Constantine is pushing. That it's related to where the stations are, um, and one and the civic campus idea was basically, you know, the, the courthouse, the jail. There's a county administration building. There's some other lots, and um, he's talking about moving that entire campus down to a basically where the bus barn is in um, Soto. And so basically moving the jail and the courthouse out of downtown and then there'll be a massive redevelopment. I, I just think that this could be one of the biggest, you know, potential changes in downtown. You're talking about, I think it's four or six blocks or square blocks. It's like a ton of space. And you think about public-private partnership, lots of developers involved, mm-hmm. um, tons of money. Uh, I'm curious if we actually would build it, if we tore down a jail if in the politics of King County right now, they would actually build a jail. I don't know. Right. There's been the goal yeah. of... I mean, Dallas said we, we need to close the jail. Yeah. Anyway, it's this is a this is a just something... This could be the, I think this would be the biggest public-private partnership since the creation of Westlake Plaza and we, you know, and mm. the Nordstrom and the, and if everybody's around at that time, yeah. the parking garage and there's all kinds of mess. There's a lot of good investigative reporting. <laughs> and as an investigations editor, I just think the Civic Plaza idea is Bears reporting. Someone hand him a tissue, he's salivating. <laughs> Alex, anything to add? Yeah, I just wanted to add on to the delays of uh, sound transit. Um, it, it's a little disheartening um, because I, I do believe the demand is there, um, especially on the east side. I know a couple tech companies were actually looking forward to that. We had an event, um, uh, a Bellevue event, a couple months ago, and the Meta lead, uh, Facebook lead, here said that um, they actually have a parking issue at their big Spring District campus because um, it, it was built to sort of facilitate this public transit hub 
Um, it was going to be like a parking ride. No, they just didn't build a lot of parking at the oh, campus oh, they didn't build because much. they're yeah. waiting on that I light see. rail ride. Um, so you know, he heavily hinted that you know these delays are kind of troubling for us. And mm-hmm. Meta's going back to the office just like Amazon is. Amazon's in Bellevue and Redmond. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how these big corporate partners sort of start to eye the uh, sound transit delays. I think. Yeah, they're called Meta, but they want some <laughs> physical infrastructure yes. to yes. happen. Okay. Uh, we, we just got a couple minutes left. I always want to know what made you smile. I will contribute that I used to live near Tacoma, travel through by bus all the time. I can still physically recall the, the Tacoma aroma <laughs> in my body. It's dissipated, but um, the, the one of the historically main culprits is about to close the formerly known as Simpson Tacoma Craft Pulp and Paper Mill shutting down. I'm not smiling because of jobs going away. I'm smiling because I remember being at a comedy show in Tacoma in the 90s in this out-of-town comic making making fun of the aroma. And he said he went to a bar before the show and asked people about the smell. And some guy said, hey, hey, that's the smell of money. And he said, yeah, if you keep your cash in your butthole, that's why I have a visa. And I know that's stupid and juvenile, but I laughed then and it reminded me of that comedian. Okay, so you can, no matter what you come up with, will be better than that. <laughs> I, um, I watched a great documentary um, last night, and I, I think there's been a lot of kind of lousy documentaries happening, and probably more with the writer's strike. I don't know, uh, you know, what, uh, what the future holds. But there's been a lot of kind of crappy documentaries that on Netflix and stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, so, so I was really, like, had my expectations low. But there's this documentary called BS High. So good. Uh, it's so good. It's about, um, it's about the, the school you may remember that played on ESPN that was uh, turned out to not be a real school, uh, but rather a not really to be a real football program. They played against um, a very well-known school called IGM, uh, IMG, sorry, um, and uh, and got their butts whooped. Uh, but it but it actually is like this really sad, poignant, you know, documentary about race, about you know, about socioeconomic class. Um, it's and, and also at the center is this, this charlatan guy, and I find charlatans just so fascinating. A classic so, fraudster. Oh, I loved yeah. it. Um, Eric is not into sports. <laughs> if you're into this documentary, it's oh, gotta be good. The great thing is you don't have to know anything about this football. Is, yeah. Okay, we we got to go. Did are you bursting with a smile? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I went to Lake Forest Parks, uh, third place books, and picked up a book I can't put down: The Book of Goose. And nothing makes me smile like a book. Book of Goose. Yes, okay, fantastic. write that down. And I'm going to log roll for a friend. Um, Mackenzie Funk's got a book called The Hank Show coming out. I'm like plowing through it. Um, I think it's out in October. I have a galley copy, but look for it. It's a terrific story about a fraudster. We love fraudsters here. <laughs> the Hank Show. Okay, now I'm being genuine when I say thank you, Publicola's co-founder, publisher Erica Barnett, Seattle Times Investigations Editor Jonathan Martin, Puget Sound Business Journal text reporter, tech reporter Alex Halverson. Love to see you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Week in Review, produced by Kevin Kniestet and Bernard Wellett runs the board. I'm Bill Radke, and we'll talk to you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.